Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People This Week. You cannot stand up to horrible racism or pretend to do so and invite the man in through the front door. After that tweet, should Trump still get a state visit? I mean, it's absurd to give them money. You're coming out of a club which you've subsidised to the tune of 200 billion. A Brexit divorce bill breakthrough, but will Eurosceptics be happy to write the cheque? And Emily Thornbury delivers the gags at PMQs. And I, for one, will of course be waving my St George's flag. (laughs) All of this and more on Commons People. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost UK's politics podcast with me, Owen Bennett. And this week I am joined by Paul War. Hello, Paul. Hello. And Kate Forrester. Hello, Kate. Hello. And happy birthday for earlier in the week. Ah, thanks. 30 years young. Old. Yes, indeed, that's right. Anyway, yes, he's been at it again. Donald J. Trump used his Twitter account to cause another international incident this week retweeting three videos posted by Britain First Deputy Leader. Uh, Given legitimacy to the far-right group led MPs to urge Theresa May to cancel Trump's state visit to the UK. An urgent question was tabled in the Commons on Thursday morning by Labour MP Stephen Dougherty, who accused Trump of being racist, incompetent, unthinking, or all three. Here's Labour's Chris Bryant. You cannot stand up to horrible racism or pretend to do so and invite the man in through the front door. (laughs) In the past, the Home Secretary repeatedly and quite rightly, when she was Home Secretary, the Prime Minister, when she was Home Secretary, said homophobes and racists who will stir up hatred in this country will not be allowed in this country and if they come to this country, they'll be arrested. (laughs) That's what should happen in this case and the Home Secretary knows it. Just say it. (laughs) Home Secretary... Amberard, from the dispatch box, reminded MPs about the importance of the special relationship. President Donald Trump was wrong to retweet videos posted by far-right group Britain First. When we look at the wider picture, the relationship between the UK and America, then I know how valuable the friendship is between our two nations. And as we record this podcast, Theresa May has given a press conference in which she said Britain First is a hateful organisation. The retweets were the wrong thing to do, but did not row back on the state visit, saying an invitation has been extended. It's been accepted, although we have yet to set a date. And we are joined by Alana Horowitz-Satlin, who is Senior Editor of Breaking News at HuffPost US. Hello, Alana. Thank you for joining us. Um, Before we talk about the implications for Britain, has this registered over in America at all, him retweeting Britain first, or has it just been another example of Trump madness on Twitter? I think it's somewhere in between. I think it's definitely registered. People understand that there is um, a new degree of uh, sort of of concern um, to these sort of posts, given that they're unverified and they're very overtly anti-Muslim, but I do think that there is a level in the U.S. of um, uh, 
almost like acceptance that he's going to tweet, you know, unhinge things and retweet crazy people and things like that. And so I do think that people are a little bit jaded in that way. Because Paul, over here, it's it's a huge story, right? Theresa May's being asked questions about it on a trip to the Middle East. Yeah, it's obviously a huge story for us um, because it's not every day the United States president decides to directly, publicly, to millions of people, um, uh, criticise the British Prime Minister and, and basically give her a little lecture and, you know, you stay out of my affairs, and, you know, you've got your own problems with, with Islamic terrorism, thank you very much, which is basically what he was saying. Um, the, the thing that I think's interesting is that Trump has gone... You know, it's from being purely someone who uses Twitter as a broadcast tool to someone who's now using it to share other people's propaganda. So he he does the occasional retweets and things, but th- th- there's a, a mood apparently in the States overnight that actually in the last few days he's decided to um, proactively engage with his Twitter feed and, and, and follow people and actually retweet things and spread them right around. In other words, it's not just about him saying what he wants to say, it's about him spreading things as well. And that's why I think he picked up the Ann Coulter um, tweet, which is where this came from. I would have to st- disagree with you slightly there because during the campaign, he was sort of known for that, for retweeting. I mean, even uh, basically up until the inauguration, he was really known for retweeting just random followers. I mean, he retweeted like a kid in high school um and just just really like kind of nobody's random followers he would go and amplify them because his social media director was very engaged and he knew that like you know speaking directly to the people is what they kind of want and so this was a big factor a big fixture of his campaign was sort of just retweeting random followers regardless of whether or not their their feed had been sanctioned as something that was appropriate for a president and is, to be amplifying done anything like this before sort of has he retweeted the far right he retweeted, yes, yeah, definitely. Has During he? the campaign, he retweeted. I don't know if, I mean, in terms of, it kind of depends on how you define the far right because he's definitely retweeted people with history of tweeting, um, you know, far right slogans and things like that he obviously retweeted that um hillary clinton meme from during the campaign with the star of david that was first shared on a neo-nazi white supremacist website so his his social media team whether it's him personally or someone who works for him is very engaged in the online communities that have sort of really banded around and become the core the core of his followers so this is a huge this is like right out of the trump playbook and Kate, you watched the urgent question today in the Commons, where MPs lined up to see who could say the most sort of like attacking things, negative things to Trump. What was the kind of mood in the House? Was it exactly what you'd kind of expect, right? Yeah, I mean, Tory MPs as well as Labour were sort of laying into him. Um, Rachel McLean said that everyone was disgusted, um, and I think in the Commons in particular, it takes on a kind of extra significance because MPs are reminded every day of um, their colleague Joe Cox, who was obviously killed by Thomas Mayer last year, who shouted Britain first as he attacked her. Um, and Home Affairs um, Select Committee Chair Yvette Cooper um, basically called that out today. She said, we know what happens here, given our history. Um, we know what happens when people don't stand up and say no and take a stand. She pointed, didn't she, to the, to the plaque, to the plaque yeah. behind um, obviously, the, the big talk now is over the state visit. That was the kind of point of this. Um, members of the cabinet, I mean, Sajid Javid said, tweeted, you know, uh, the, the president's endorsed the views of a vile, hate-filled, racist organisation that hates me and people like me. He is wrong. 
and I refuse to let it go and say nothing. So from that, is there now pressure from Theresa Maple from within her own cabinet to cancel this state visit? Well, I'm told that cabinet ministers don't want to go that far, that some ministers do, some ministers, no one's going to say cancel the visit, but what, and it was clear from Theresa May's press conference just now that she talked about um, no date has yet been set for the state visit. So that might be a sort of uh, a polite way of saying, look, this has been shelved for a very, very long time. And as I pointed out this morning, don't forget Theresa May, in theory, is in office longer than Donald Trump. She, you know, next goes to the polls in, 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 your wars, in, in June 22, and his his presidency ends in January 21. So it's possible she could say, well, I was going to do it at the end of my term, but, you know, it didn't quite work out that way. But I think that... Um, if it does happen, there will, there's talk about being some downgraded informal visit rather than a state visit. I'm not sure that's going to be that workable, whether or not Trump's going to accept that as a slight to his ego. But it brings us back to, you know, what is this all about? It's about what, and Theresa May said, look, this is about the special relationship. It's not about the man, Trump. It's about the office of president. It's about two countries' national interests, America and Britain, and the things we've got in common. So she's... Almost it's like a masochism strategy she's got. She's going to take a lot of flack for having engaged with Trump, gone to the White House with him, held his hand, um, been the first there to sort of legitimise him after his inauguration. So she's swallowed a lot of flack for that. In return, she's obviously getting flack back from him. But I think she's going to have to swallow that too, because ultimately it's all about Brexit. And Brexit means we don't we need as many friends on the global stage as we can get. And here's a massive player. And so it is about raw national self-interest and engaging with them. And you've got that's all good and well. But does it get you results? And I was looking at when we were there in January um, in the White House. One thing she did get from Trump was at the first press conference, she, she got him to agree to recognize that NATO should continue. Now, it's amazing that you think an American president would even be asked that, but she, that was a big tick. She got him to back off these mad demands to, to lift sanctions on Russia, which some, some people around him wanted to do. Um, so that's another big tick. On, on Iran and the nuclear deal, now Trump's obviously tempted to do something else that Britain and the rest of Europe and the rest of the world don't want. But again, in her speech just now in Jordan, she stressed how important that was. It's 12 years in the making. It's possible that Trump could be just shifted away from some outright mad scheme to, to end the Iran nuclear deal. And equally on climate change, you know, maybe, just maybe, he's going to have to rethink his idea that, you know, he can pull out unilaterally from climate change. So she could argue, and people around her argue, look, we're making some kind of progress. A lot of... This, the state visit, I mean, how does that play in America? Does that get lots of coverage over there? I remember, I think George W. Bush had one, didn't he? And he loved all the, all the pomp and, and ceremony of it all. Does that get any, I mean, does, will this matter to the American people? Do I don't think it'll matter much to the American people. I think it'll matter to Trump. I think Paul's absolutely right that having it downgraded at some kind of um, unofficial state visit not involving the Queen or if it's even cancelled officially altogether, I think will be a huge uh, blow to his ego. I think he would lash out in some way. Um, I think the best strategy for her, if she wants to walk the line, maybe to just kind of keep putting it off indefinitely until they can, you know, calm the waters a little bit. Alana, before you go, do you want to take part in this week's quiz? Sure. I love quizzes. Do. Lovely. This week's quiz is called... Um, State of the nation or sad state of affairs? <laughs> I just Good. made that up. And I'm going to give you a country. I want you to tell me whether the Queen has hosted a state visit for this country. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Iceland. Iceland? Iceland. I'm going to go with no. Iceland. And I was going no. I'd say no. I'm not sure the head of state's worth 
Oh, harsh. Oh. From her point of view oh. or from the British government's point of view? Uh, mind you, the Cod Wars pool, no, which I'm we lost. I'm just saying, you know, from the British government's national it's interest point of view. Maybe it's not. Well, I don't know. You just I might said be wrong. all the friends we can get after Brexit. And you think, yeah. Sorry. Unbelievable. I'm <laughs> going yes, because no, I feel bad. No, it was no. Oh, See, I was right. Yeah. Uh, Iraq. As the Queen hosted a state visit. This is ever. This is since the, since the Queen became Queen. So long time. Um, mm. I'm going to go with yeah. You're going to go with yes. Did she do one before Saddam Hussein was in power? Or maybe with Saddam I Hussein. feel like it was. There I was one. I think she would ever have done Saddam. You we sure? Have about it. You sure? But I before think before Saddam, you never know. Maybe. Maybe. I'm going to say maybe yes. Maybe it's not an option, Paul. I'm going to say Go yes. On. Before Saddam. I'm going to say yes as well. Yes. King Faisal II in 1956. Yes. Uh, Afghanistan. Did you ever have a state visit for Afghanistan? That's hard. That is hard, isn't it? Again, it might be some old ruler, previous sort of... It could be. Or did I just throw that in there? I think you've just thrown it in there. I'm going to say it's wrong. I'm going to say yeah. Yeah. I'm saying no. It is yes. In 1971, King Mohammed Zahar Shah. Uh Uh, Zimbabwe. Definitely. Robert Mugabe. I think she's shaking his hand. Yeah, what year? Do you know? Don't know. 1994. So you're on that one. Alana, Turkey. So Queen never hosts a state visit from Turkey. Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I'm going to go with no. Okay. Yes. Yeah, three times. Ooh. Three times. Yeah, President Sanay in 1967, President Everin in 1988, and President Gul in 2011. Oh. Uh, Egypt. Gotta be yeah, right? Mm, I don't know. NASA, we we didn't like, and she came to power in the fifties. Yeah. NASA was there soon after, so we wouldn't so have had anything so Mubarak, to do with maybe? him. I don't think we did a Mubarak. I'm going to say no. Okay, I'm going to say no as well. It was President Hosni Mubarak <gasps> in 1991. Done a lot. So there we are. So some other ones that she's done. Uh, oh no, I've said all the ones she's done. Oh no, and Putin, 2003, of course. Wow, she's done. Uh, hasn't done Argentina. Hasn't done Yugoslavia. Didn't do Libya. She did a lot. A lot, and of course, not none of the Commonwealth countries where she's still head, like Australia or anything. But she has done India, which is a republic. She's of the shaken mm. the hands of a lot of dictators. She so has Trump will be say. no different. Hey, Trump will be no different. Exactly. Uh, well, you know, that's not. Why don't we ask Alana while she's here, just finally? <laughs> Go on. How bang on was our American site when they got into trouble for describing Trump with an editor's note as yeah. being a proven liar, a misogynist, and a racist? Now, yeah. surely on all three fronts, he's now proved in spades that that's true. I mean, should we, is, sorry, it ti- is it time to bring back the editor's note? I think his comments speak for itself. You know, I don't, th- I don't think you that. I think <laughs> you, you do your. I think you you can do your best work as a journalist by refuting everything he says whenever he does. You know, lie or bring up something that's um, inflammatory, and you contrast it with the truth. Um, I think you kind of you know. Speaks for itself. Very diplomatic. I like yeah. that. Very diplomatic. <laughs> not wanting to change the editor policy of our American site there live on our podcast. Thank you, Lana. Much appreciated. Thanks, guys. Let's turn to Brexit. Has there finally been a breakthrough in Brussels? This week it was reported the UK will increase its divorce bill payment from £20 billion to £49 billion. Downing Street resources refused to confirm the figure, of course, but even ardent Brexiteer Chris Grayling said they were mere speculation, which is hardly a denial so far backbench brexiteer discipline is matching that of the cabinet brexiteers but nigel farage wrote in the telegraph the payment will be a complete and total sellout and here's tory mp peter bone telling skies don't murderhan why he's not happy with the figure 
Well, if we had that sort of money, then wouldn't it be better spent on our health service or other public service or perhaps on some of it on defence? I mean, it's absurd to give them money. That you're coming out of a club which you've subsidised to the tune of 200 billion and they want more money from us. I mean, it just doesn't make any so sense. So you and the Go Whistle camp, they don't need anything. I absolutely Go Whistle. So uh, this figure seems to be where we're going to be all along, right? The EU wanted 100 billion, we wanted nothing, we've arrived at about 50 billion. What has been the point? I mean, I mean, I refer to my Brexit briefing, which always said this was all a big charade, this argument, and it was always going to come down to this figure. Paul, was I right? Of course you were. Thank you very much. Next question. <laughs> um, but I <laughs> we're mean, not surprised by this, are we? Not a lot. Of it. Well, you know, I mean, are we? There's been a lot of. It's in the nature of these negotiations that people on both sides are going to try and push for the, as hard as they can for you know their own red lines. But negotiation doesn't really involve red lines. It involves sort of you know pink lines and sort of rubbing them out here and there. And that's what it's all about. You know, we were just talking about national self-interest for the special relationship with Britain and America. There's national self-interest on both sides here in the EU and UK on Brexit. And, you know, Ireland's a classic example. You know, of course, there's no way Ireland wants to have a disorderly Brexit or, you know, push things so far that Theresa May has to cave into the Brexiteers, the extreme ones, that that's not going to happen. So there will be some kind of compromise on the Irish border. I mean, it might be, as someone has suggested, you know, there just might be a people turn a blind eye to the odd bit of small-scale illegality going over the border in Northern Ireland. And isn't it funny that today, all we've had about the Irish border being the big Brexit problem, and then all of a sudden the money gets solved. And today we get, do you know what, I think we might get sufficient progress in the Irish border after all. Now, is that me being cynical, Kate, or was (laughs) this always just, it was always about the money, wasn't it? Um, I think so, yeah. Um, Obviously, Ireland, uh, Chris Grayling, I think, on today said uh, that Ireland was already boxed. Um, he was sort of pressed to sort of confirm that they uh, that they wouldn't have a hard border, um, and can he rule it out? And he basically said, "I think we already have." So well, apparently that's they dealt they with. Well, yeah, yeah, basically. Um, also, I feel a bit sorry for the Lib Dems off the back of this. Why? Because they uh, Tom Brake was really keen that you know this uh, this fifty billion figure could you know galvanise support for a second referendum, and I fear that they're going to be very disappointed. Well, I mean, all the Tory Brexiters I speak to, especially the Peter Bones this world. They all just say, yeah, fine, we'll pay it. They're more annoyed about the possibility of ECJ having jurisdiction in the transition period. That's what they're, that's what they're and maybe even slightly longer, that's where they're rooted. This, I think they look at it. And also the Remainer point of view is, oh, this is 50 billion, which could be spent on the NHS or whatever. It's like, well, hold on a minute. If we're still in the EU, we'd be paying this money anyway in membership fees. So it's you, you can't have it both ways, can you, Paul? Surely they've done the right thing here at the government. Am I just... Well, as I say, it's about national (laughs) self-interest. And ultimately, you know, we've got to get a deal. We've got to make it as smooth as possible. I mean, there will be some difficult um, decisions to be taken on things like, you know, the City of London. Will will all the Brexiteers accept that if we want to keep the City of London and services as sort of booming as they are for the British economy, that we're going to have to take, be rule takers rather than rule makers, as in the jargon. Um, they might actually have to swallow that a bit. Just as Theresa May swallows Trumpisms, you know, the Brexiteers are going to have to swallow a bit of rule taking, a bit of ECJ here and there, and a bit of finessing. But ultimately, I think they'll be happy that we'll be just be out, we'll be shot of it. And, you know, that's the view of quite a few voters. The really interesting stuff comes next year in this new uh, bit of legislation, which is... T- um, David Davis announced there's going to be yet another bill, as if we haven't got enough already on Brexit, but another one which is purely on 
withdrawal and implementation, a new withdrawal and implementation bill. And that will seek to basically replicate all the things that we think we've pulled out of. So it will replicate the EU taking EU rules for another two years in the transition after we've left. In other words, you have to legislate for all those things that we think we're pulling out of. Now, that's a, a prime spot for lots of, you know, Eurosceptics. Um, but again, Theresa May has an overall majority for a soft Brexit if Labour are taken into account and if most of her party are taken into account. And just very quickly, on the Brexit impact assessment studies, whatever the hell these things are, they were handed over to the committee this week, but David Davis held some stuff back. Here's a little clip of Keir Starmer in the Commons talking about that. On the 1st of November, after a three-hour debate, this House voted in favour of a humble address requiring all 38 sectoral analyses to be passed to the Brexit Select Committee. Not some of the reports, not redacted copies, the full reports. The Government did not seek to amend the humble address, nor did it vote against the motion. Shadow Brexit Secretary there. Very quickly these impact assessments because, God, I'm bored of them. I mean, basically, David Davis, he shot himself, overshot, didn't he? He made out, they'd done all this work and there's all these reports and someone said, right, let's have a look at them. And he went, ah, well, okay. And then he's like, they spent the past month not taking stuff out, but just writing the things up. Then they gave him over a hard copy of 850 pages. Didn't even email it over. So the committee had to spend the whole morning photocopying them. It's very thick of it, isn't it? I pitched. <laughs> And you've got a cold. Yeah, but these impact assessments, for me, this is a bit of a... I know everyone's getting very excited about it, but we know what they're going to say. Well, nobody's going to make them publish the things that they say are sensitive, are they? You can can hide behind commercially sensitive for quite a lot of stuff. Um, So... Yeah, it's farcical. It's, it's all, very. But they, they know who they've spoken to. So the Brexit committee with that bot, they could just get these sectors in in front of them and say, what did you tell them? Paul, well, they it? could. But I mean, the, the, Kate's right. You know, they can hide behind quite a few things to justify it. But the, the the basic point is that David Davis made it sound as though he'd done quite a lot of detail work <laughs> when actually, as far as I've been told, that senior civil servant said, this has only really been drafted in the last few weeks. You know, it's all that stuff about, well, we got this all under control. But it's about the terminology of it as well. You know, was it really a sexual analysis that Davis was referring to or was it something else? But this document has been drafted. And the question is, I suspect it be drafted. It's so anodyne. It will be so empty that it will be kind of worthless and meaningless. I think Davis, is, he's a man who once described as being able to swagger when he sits down. I think that sums Davis up. And I think he was sort of swaggering his way through this committee when he made these remarks. Anyway, let's move on now to Prime Minister's questions. Theresa May wasn't there this week. So we had the deputies. We had Emily Thornbury for Labour. And we had Damien Green for the Tories. Here is Emily Thornbury's uh, gag-laden introduction. Um, let me first join the Secretary of State in congratulating the RAF on its anniversary and congratulating Prince Harry and Meghan Markle on their engagement. That's one Anglo-American couple who we on this side well, will be delighted to see holding hands. <laughs> I'm sure that Prince Harry... I'm sure that Prince Harry, the patron of Rugby Football League, uh, will be joining all of us in supporting the England team in the World Cup final on Saturday. And I, for one, will of course be waving my St George's flag. (laughs) Honour! Oh, how we laughed. Um, But she did a good job, didn't she, Emily Thorne? Towards the end, she tripped over a little bit. Yeah, she did. She did towards the end. But she started off very, very well. and, And, you know, it's not a coincidence that her special advisor is Damien McBride. Uh, and that he knows how Prime Minister's questions Wasn't work. He once labelled Mick Prick. He's an old hand. hand. He's an old hand. And so he knows the sort of rope dope tricks of PMQs. And starting off with that gentle sort of 
slightly worrying question about, um, uh, you know, previous impropriety. You know, she hinted at it, and that put Damon Green right on the back foot from the beginning. And he, as a result, he sounded nervous, stuttering, hesitant, and like I've never seen him Every before in the chamber. Every other word was uh, wasn't it? Every other word was uh. He got things wrong. He repeatedly got things. He got the the NHS sustainability and transformation plan. He got that the name of that wrong. He got the name of the the national action plan wrong. He got so many things wrong in a short period of time. You thought, whoa, he really is stumbling here. And I noticed as he left the chamber unlike previous D- dpmqs he wasn't patted on the back by a single mp he just walked out like it looked like dead man walking now that might not be the case it might be that he's cleared and he's quite confident but he just knows he's got to get through all this he's got to you know eat quite a lot of humble pie okay emily thornby was this uh, yet another audition for her to succeed jeremy corbyn has she got the support among the mps and the activists to be the next labor leader i think she probably has actually um, she's she's done really well. I mean, there's no denying it. The fact that she can... I think the mark of her having risen in confidence so much is the fact that she could poke fun at herself yesterday in her opening yeah. as well with the St. George's flag stuff, um, which shows she's much more comfortable in what she's doing. Um, can I just say as well, I thought Damien Green did all right on, his, uh, on the question when she tried to sort of trip him up over his own constituency. Well, he did okay. He recovered in the end. He said, don't lecture me. Although we haven't... We don't yet know the detail of that and That's I suspect true. she was right to highlight he said he said look option one yeah. on the list is to keep it open and yeah. blah blah we don't know what option two three or four are so it sounded good you're right it, it was a good comeback true. but I think in terms of Emily Thornberry's chances of being Labour leader she's in a very strong position there's no question a because the next leader of the Labour Party has to be a woman everybody in the Labour Party says that whether you're an MP whether you're an activist at any level left or right or centre it's got to be a woman so if you're looking at women contenders there's going to be her I suspect there'll be Angela Rayner mm-hmm. who's again um, last night held a reception for Enfield North constitu- constituency she's putting herself about a bit um, really well liked by a lot of people on different wings of the party um, and Rebecca Long Bailey is the one which she uh, seems to she seems to disappeared team. a bit. Yeah, I think a, a curveball would be Lisa Nandy. Um, it would be a curveball because um, you know at the moment you wouldn't rate her chances in terms she of chaired Owen Smith's leadership campaign against. Well, Morgan, that that so will be that will be. She didn't chair it, but she. I thought she did chair it. No, but she she made clear that actually she wanted to get rid of Corbyn, and that will be held against her. Yeah. And but then again, she says a lot of things that people like Owen Jones really really like. Uh, you know, and he's a key constituency for a lot of those activists. Yeah, but a lot of them are falling out of love with him. Because That's of true. But, you know, there, there is an agenda there, a sort of alternative, interesting agenda. Mm. Um, whether or not she wants to be leader is another question. But, yeah, those are the three women contenders that I would I would say at the moment. And um, Emily Thornberry obviously has, has done well at, at the highest level, in other words, punching at the dispatch box. And, and that's, you know, she uses guile and subtlety in a way that Jeremy Corbyn knows isn't his forte. You know, he just really goes for it. He's Jeremy and and that's it. You know, you know what you get. But with Emily Thornberry, there's, there's a lot more guile. There's a lot more um, finesse, shall we say. And it's you can tell she's a barrister and she likes all of that. So it's interesting to see that dynamic work. Excellent. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for listening, everyone. And next week is our hundredth one of these. Is it? Hundredth Commons People thing we've put out. Let's are make we it getting, special. Are we I think it might be 101st because oh, I look so. back, but we're going to call this one the hundredth next okay, week. The hundredth, right? So we'll do. Let's make it special. Something hundredth, the something different. Bring up the century. Raise your bat. All that stuff. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, see you next week. Bye. We're 
With the McDonald's app, you can get your favorite thing delivered to your door. So if you were looking for a reason to skip washing those dishes you left in the sink, consider this a sign. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Right now, get $0 delivery fee with any purchase of $15 or more, only in the app. At participating McDonald's, minimum purchase excludes tax and service fees. Delivery prices may be higher than in restaurants. Other fees may apply, not valid with any other offer, discount, or coupon.